Well, good morning, Marcel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. We're continuing to see that story for Israel and how that story of Israel connects to our own story as believers in the Lord Jesus. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I kind of wanted to give a little word of caution. As you've heard, this text today contains some mature topics. Um, you probably discern that from the reading. <laughs> You're probably wondering what I'm going to say, which is, I was in your shoes on Monday. <laughs> what in the world am I going to say? So I say all that to say, if you have children with you now, or you're listening to this later in the car or in the kitchen, um, use your wisest judgment. Are you ready to have the kind of conversations and questions that may inevitably spring from this text? So last week, we looked at what seemed to be, at surface value, this seemingly obscure code of rules about what to do with our property when something happens, when livestock dies or a field is destroyed or some property, a piece of property was stolen. But what was really neat about that text is actually we saw it pointing forward to Christ. That were all three of those categories of problems that sin brought, theft, death, and destruction, were the exact same three things that the Lord Jesus says the enemy does. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. But that Jesus would defeat that enemy by laying down his life as our good shepherd to die for us and then to rise again. So even though it didn't seem like it at the very beginning, how would this text point to Jesus? It ultimately did. And it really doesn't seem like this kind of a text that we're going to read today could continue to point to Jesus, but I think we'll be pleasantly surprised it does. Because everything in Scripture is ultimately about Jesus or pointing towards Jesus or getting us ready to receive Jesus. And that's how, what I think is going on here in this text today, that these laws are going to be broken up into two categories, and both of these categories are preparing Israel's heart and readying their ears to hear about the one who brings true justice. You see, if God loves to make things right, it's because he's all about justice. It's because he wants to protect the powerless. So what he really wants us to do is to avoid injustice in the first place, to be ready to receive the one who brings justice, to stand before him. This is why God has called Israel to be a holy nation. Remember, before they were given the law, in Exodus 19.6, God said to them, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this passage today deals largely with how Israel was supposed to be that holy nation. They're supposed to be a holy nation set apart for a purpose, that's what holy means, in two specific ways. They're supposed to have distinct living as opposed to their neighbors, and then distinct worship. That they were supposed to live differently and that they were supposed to worship differently. But why is it that God is concerned about their different living and their different worship? And why would these laws kind of be intermingled as they are today? It's because our worship directly affects our living. In other words, what or whom we worship largely affects how we live. What does our life look like? In fact, if you look at somebody's life, you could probably make educated guesses about their idols. If they worship material things or their career, 
you're going to be able to kind of tell what their life is like. If they worship experience and authenticity, you're going to be able to tell what their life is like. Hopefully, if they worship the Lord Jesus, you're going to have an educated guess on what their life is like. Israel is to be a holy nation, which means they can't worship or live like their soon-to-be neighbors in Canaan. So what were the nations around Israel like? Well, largely, they lived in a way that grieved God. While some of their laws reflected justice, a lot of them were just absolutely merciless. They had very little room for grace, and unfortunately, there was inequality baked into some of their laws, as we'll see today. And certainly, the way they worshiped grieved God. They worshiped false gods, powers that could be manipulated, spirits that encouraged human depravity, beings that relished in upending God's very good creation and his created order. See, these gods, these so-called gods, don't like what God has created, and they want to see its end. So they, like the enemy, want Israel to steal and to kill and to destroy. So all these laws that we're dealing with here about worship are pointing Israel to worship the true God, because at the end of the day, we become like what we worship. At the end of the day, we become like what we worship. This is a pattern that we're going to see repeating over and over and over again through Exodus. It's one that I want to bring up over and over and over again, because idolatry is not just a problem that happened in Sinai with a golden calf. Idolatry is a problem that's happening right now, even within our hearts as I speak. You become like what you worship. There's an Old Testament scholar, G.K. Beale, that was the first to point me to this observation in the Old Testament, and it's brilliant. He says it like this, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And that's when I learned you can use our words a lot, communicate a lot. But it's brilliant how he packs that together. What people revere, they worship. They resemble, they look like, either for ruin or for restoration. In other words, the longer you worship an idol, the more you become like it and the closer you get to ruin. But the longer you worship God, the more you move towards restoration and become like him in ways that are communicable to us. What I'm not saying, and I want to be very clear, is that the longer you worship God, you become a God. The longer you worship God, you become omniscient and omnipotent. No. You become like God in the ways that God communicates to us about his character, his wills, his desires, his action. We want what he wants, his way. We think what he reveals is truth. We do what he does, his life. In other words, the more we worship God, the more we become like the Lord Jesus. So think about how idols are described all throughout the Old Testament. They're immobile. They can't, they're made of raw materials, right? They're unable to sense. They can't see. They can't smell. They're blind. They're deaf. They're unthinking because they're made of raw material, gold and silver and bronze and wood. None of those things can love or reason or sense. How many of you are friends with raw material? None of you, because they're not, they're not alive. They're dead, right? And so that's the Old Testament's warning. You become like what you worship. Psalm 115 points this out very clearly, starting in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold and the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, feet but they do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. They can't speak, they can't communicate. And the longer you worship them, the longer you worship those idols, Israel, 
the more you become like them. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. The longer you worship idols, the more spiritually immobile you become, blind to truth, deaf to God's voice, unable to comprehend his glory. And so it's no surprise that as Israel is preparing to enter into a new land, one that is ruled by ungodly law and occupied by idolatry, God is giving them a warning in these codes. God doesn't want his people to be like the nations. He wants them to be holy, set apart for a specific purpose. Not to be like them and their gods, but to be like him. To be just and to be righteous and to be merciful. And one of the ways that God is going to do this is he's going to give them codes that if they follow them, will not only create human flourishing, but will habituate them into being more and more like Yahweh, which is the point. Because Israel is supposed to represent Yahweh to the nations. So, here he gives laws to prevent them from becoming like our neighbors. And what we're going to do with these laws is we're going to jump around a little bit. This is a little odd for the way that we teach here. But these laws are kind of jumbled together. But the more you study and the more you realize there are those two categories. There's the category of distinct living, the category of distinct worship, and in the center of these laws is the law prohibiting worship of other gods, which is really interesting. So what do you think is most important in this section? So let's begin by looking at these passages, by looking at the law specifically that has to do with distinct living. God's main message for distinct living in these laws is to protect the oppressed. Those who are poor and marginalized and vulnerable, we will call them powerless, the powerless ones. And the codes for distinct living to protect the powerless are seen in three laws here. Verses 16 through 17 deals with the protection of daughters of God, the women of Israel. Verses 21 through 24 deals with the protection of the sojourner or the visitor or the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. And then verses 25 through 30, halfway through 30, protects the poor in lending practices and feeding. So women in Israel, sojourners, widows, orphans, the poor, these would be considered the powerless ones in their society. And God is creating laws to protect those powerless ones. Let's look at the protection of God's daughters, the women of Israel, verses 16 through 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her, give her to him, then he, being the seducer, shall pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. You're probably thinking, how does this protect daughters of God? In some ways, it sounds exactly how it sounds. God's preparing Israel to go into a culture where, which viewed women essentially as property. To be fair to them, extremely valuable property, but property nonetheless. There's clear power dynamics in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that favor men over women. But Israel was supposed to be different. Not in the sense of some kind of egalitarian way that we would think today in the 21st century West. Clearly, the Old Testament is going to unfold to be a patriarchy. There's no denying it. But there's supposed to be provisions for protection for women in Israel that don't exist in other ancient Near Eastern laws, like in Babylon or like in Canaan. Well, how do we get that 
<laughs> from this law. Paying for women? That sounds a bit barbaric. Well, what is a bridal price? Because to answer that question, what a bridal price is, will help us understand what's going on here in this law. A bridal price in Israel is not tantamount to paying for forced servitude. There are other terms for that that Israel had, and it's not present in this text. So it's essentially not purchasing a slave. That's not what the text has in mind here. What does it have in mind? So back in this time, family clans were essentially small businesses. The father was the head of the household, acted like the CEO. The mother played various VP roles and was put in charge, especially over the servants. The firstborn heir, or the firstborn son, was the heir apparent. So no matter how many sisters they had older than him, he was eventually going to take over the family business. And the daughters worked for and worked with their dad and their mom. So when it came time for her to be married to another family clan, dad and mom and the firstborn son effectively lost not only a daughter and a sister, but a valued member of their little business. And to compensate, the gaining family would offer resources as a way of saying thank you for allowing your daughter to join our clan, to join our tribe, to join our business. Because now we're in direct competition with you. And she knows your family secrets about how your pots are made so well and how your ropes are made so well. This was essentially a thank you and a mutual understanding between these two small tribes that even though a daughter is leaving and joining, we're still going to be on good terms together as a community. So that's what a bridal price is getting at. It's not buying a woman. Now this law then deals with a scenario where a man abuses his social power and essentially steals a daughter away from a family by selfishly manipulating the young woman, using her, discarding her as if she was a thing or an object. And we know that that kind of angle is played here because the law puts the blame on the man and it uses this word seduces, which is a deceptive manipulation, okay? So this law is not so much speaking to the woman, I don't, it's, not, it's speaking about the woman, but it's speaking directly to the man that is at fault in this scenario. And there's two ways that this scenario could go. Option one, they could get married. You see, in ancient contexts, women didn't really fare well outside of those family units. And so a non-virgin woman typically was not wanted by bachelors. So when, not if, word got out that she was no longer a virgin, most of the bachelors wouldn't be interested in her anymore and she would be on a fast track to economic ruin and social embarrassment, perhaps even to poverty and starvation. So by marrying her, this law prevents further injustice from happening against her. But I'm not so sure that scenario played out very often. I think option number two is what played out more often than not. I'm just guessing here, but option two assumes, or option one assumes a lot, like everybody's cool with this scenario. But imagine the dad is not, and I don't know why he would be. You still need dad's permission for the marriage. So in option two, dad's understandably not happy with this young man and does not want a manipulative kid as his son-in-law. So he refuses to allow his daughter to marry him, which means two things. First, the seducing man must pay as if he were marrying her anyway, 
despite not getting a wife, and now despite very poor prospects of finding a wife in the future. Because once word gets out that Timmy over there paid a bridal price without getting a bride, people are going to put two and two together and be like, oh, not the greatest guy. And so dad's going to look at his daughter and say, Timmy over there, not worth hanging out. So he's being ostracized for his sin. But also, the father is dedicating the rest of his life to supporting his daughter. She's not married. She stays in the tribe. She's likely never going to get married, which means for the rest of her life, she's going to experience community shame. She's going to be single. But the dad is saying, I'm going to take care of you anyway. This is shockingly progressive for this time. I don't think we could understand how forward-thinking and forward-looking this law really is. We get a little bit of a hint of that because there's a Babylonian law that speaks to the exact same scenario of a man seducing a virgin. And the law has the man paying a fine, not to the family, but to the government, of $3,500. So, women, you are worth, your, your innocence is worth exactly $3,500 to the Babylonian government. But according to Mosaic law, the man who seduces in this scenario had to pay the bride price, which again, it's not about the money, but as a footnote, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars as opposed to 3,000. It's not the money that matters here, it's the token of the price, the meaning of the bride price, that's what matters. You see, in ancient Israelite culture, a woman, a young woman who didn't feel valued as a woman because she was manipulated into giving away her virginity, how do you go about proving to her that that thought is wrong by paying the bride price even without a wedding day. You see, the bride price isn't so much about the manipulator having to pay a fine because he got caught as it is God declaring to an emotionally broken woman, yes, you are worth it. You are worth it to me because you're my daughter. So God cares about his daughters. He's not going to tolerate men leveraging their power to take whomever they want for his pleasure at the expense of daughter's innocence and the inevitable sorrow that follows. So even though ancient Near Eastern cultures would have viewed women as property, God doesn't. And he's setting up laws and he'll set up more to safeguard and protect women in Israelite culture. And I think another thing he's doing with this law is he's setting Israelite men on a trajectory away from the temptation of being like the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them to return towards God's original intention behind men and women, which was absolute, equal, intrinsic value with different compatible roles, as we see in the garden. He's trying to get Israel back to what he intended in the first place. So God says, don't be like your neighbors, protect my daughters. Elsewhere, in uh, verses 21 through 24, we see even more protection codes. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's intense, right? But think about the loop that God's closing here. This passage begins with what? Sojourners and widows and ends with, if you don't follow this, there's going to be more sojourners or orphans and widows, okay? 
Look, it's fallen human nature to want to mistreat the other, to mistreat each other, people that are not from us, people that are not among us, a society who forgets the widows, who forgets the orphans, the ones that are most vulnerable and at the brink of abandonment and destruction. So in the ancient world, uh, really similar to today, if we're being honest, foreigners, outsiders, others, and orphans, and widows were primarily seen as burdens, economic drains. So for that reason, they were ignored, and they were neglected, and they were forgotten. Because imagine you're in this little tribe of people, and you and your wife are barely making enough to keep your family alive and your servants alive in a hostile environment, eking out this living in a difficult land, and then all of a sudden you're taking on two or three more children and a widow. Oh, and by the way, somebody just came from Babylon who is different than you and wants to stay for two weeks. How in the world can we support them all? God says, well, I supported you, so you support them. Now, as far as I could tell in the ancient Near East, um, there, were, there would have been laws about hospitality to the sojourner. Because you think about it, a lot of these cultures are coming out of a nomadic uh, past, okay? So hospitality was very, very important. And in a sense, you still hear echoes of that today if you've ever been to the Middle East or you come from a Middle Eastern background. Hospitality for strangers is a very important thing. And there were ancient Near Eastern laws that did provide protection for orphans and widows. And that's a great thing to see. Like, praise God, whenever you see a society or an institution or a family or a person who doesn't know God but is nevertheless doing things according to his ways, okay? You should say, like, stop doing that good thing because you don't know why you're doing it. You should say, continue to do the good things. Here's why you should continue, okay? So that's not what is, what's setting Israel apart here necessarily. What's setting Israel apart here is not the what of what you're supposed to do with sojourners, orphans, and widows, but it's the why. Did you notice that? Here, we're given a why, and this is pretty rare in the law. Why should you do this command? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. God could have just left it there, and Israel would have been like, check. But what does he say? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's what makes this law unique. God says, empathize with the powerless by remembering that you were once in their shoes. Remember this, because I think this is actually one of the most important parts of this entire passage today. Memory of God's works and our worship of him are really closely related. So God says, don't be like your neighbors. Don't just be nice to foreigners and support orphans and widows for no reason. Do it for a reason. Here's the reason. You were like them. And then he continues in verses uh, 25 through 29. He gives Israel codes for protecting the poor in both lending practices and making sure they got enough to eat. If you lend, I'm sorry, we'll start with verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. You can still exact interest from people that are, have means, you just can't do it for the poor. Okay. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, hey, can I borrow that? I promise I'll bring it back. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. 
and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness. This is verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your press. So what's going on here? As long as anybody can remember in Israel at this point in their story, they've always been dependent on someone or something for survival. In Egypt, they were dependent on Pharaoh and that economic system. And now, wandering in the wilderness, they're dependent on God for all of his care for them. But one day, they're going to receive a land of their own. And they're going to be blessed by God in this land overflowing with milk and honey. So how are they going to live in this new blessing? How are they going to live with this abundance? Are they going to be like God and give generously? Or are they going to be like their nations and selfishly hoard at the expense of the marginalized? They're not going to be there for decades, but God's already putting it into their mind. How are you going to be different from your neighbors around you? Because the temptation is going to be this. One, to assume you're an independent nation. You're not. You still depend on me, God says. And two, to hoard and keep for yourself. And that's not good because I'm a God who gives and is merciful and gracious. And if you're supposed to represent me to the world, every stranger that comes through your nation needs to leave going, well, if they worship Yahweh and Yahweh is anything like those people, he's a very gracious God. He, he will not tolerate seeing the powerless forgotten and abandoned. God's aware of that coming temptation that slowly but surely they will want more and more to blend in with the culture around them, even if it's at the expense of the poor, even if it's at the expense of the hungry. So God's calling Israel to live differently. He wants them to be a holy nation. So he's calling them to be a holy nation in how they live. How is it then that God is calling them to be a holy nation, a different nation, and how they worship? That's the second category here. So if the main message, the main thing that was keeping the holy living was protection of the powerless, the main thing that's holding together all of the laws about distinct worship is the prevention of idolatry and the forms of worship that come with idolatry. And we see that in three laws here, or three types of laws. Verse 18 is guarding against sorcery. Verse 19 is guarding against depraved rituals. Verses 20, 28, 31 is guarding against valuing or preferring so-called gods over God himself. So let's begin by looking at this first one in 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. This is actually probably the verse that we would be most familiar with um, because you may have heard it in the old King James version, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Who's ever heard that phrase before? It's part of American history. This was kind of the um, phrase that was used in New England during the 17th and eight, uh, 17th, 18th centuries for literal witch hunts. They believed there were all these witches among the women, and so they looked at this verse and were like, well, we need to execute witches after we try them. It's a dark part of our history as a culture, and today the verse is frequently used, at least I see it, um, by, as a proof text that the Bible is anti-neo-pagan and it's anti-woman because we don't see any men. Well, can you suffer a warlock to live then, is the argument. So, and my response is twofold. Like one, well, you got the Bible there. It is anti-neo-pagan. It is not a fan of you worshiping the created order. 
Um, but no, it's not anti-women because sorcerers are not necessarily just women. In fact, we've already seen sorcerers in the story, haven't we? When did we see magicians and sorcerers already? Back in, in Egypt. And this is going to give us a key as to why God is so harsh against sorcery. The sorcerers in Egypt were mimickers of God's work, and in their mimicry and in their counterfeiting of what God was doing, it gave Pharaoh comfort in remaining hard in his heart and deaf in his ear to God. Like at the end of the day, that's the problem that God has with sorcery. Doesn't care if you're a male, doesn't care if you're a female. Sorcery is a counterfeit that keeps you cold to God. And the reason that we're so attracted to these counterfeits is because it looks like the real thing that our souls yearn for. We have restless hearts. We want redemption. We want to find meaning and value and purpose. And counterfeits come, and just like a real counterfeit currency, they say, pop, pop, I've got the real thing here. It looks like it. It feels like it. Use it. But what happens when you begin to use a counterfeit? It doesn't work. It doesn't have purchasing power. So even though it looks like the real thing, it can't actually buy the thing that your soul longs for the most. The real and true purchasing power comes from the cross. It comes from the resurrection. And so God is very concerned that we would stay away from mimicry of God's work. Moreover, and in connection to verse 19, we will find out as the story of Israel moves on that sorcerers, both male and female, are going to press Israelites into very terrible forms of idolatrous worship. In Deuteronomy, they're going to be warned, and then we'll see in the Old Testament that uh, these sorcerers are part of a chorus of people that were calling to Israel to sacrifice their babies to appease gods. You want something, you want you, you want some material thing, you want something to stop, you want better weather or something. Well, I just talked to those gods and those gods want the death and the blood of babies. So bring your babies and, and that which satisfy that God's, that, that God's uh, demands. But here in Exodus 22, as terrible as that sounds, there's another terrible thing that sorcerers would lure Israel into. And we're exposed to that. And it's one of the most depraved and warped forms of worship in the ancient Near East, which gives rise to God's prohibition here in verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Frankly, this doesn't seem like it needs to be said. Lying with an animal is as disgusting to Israel as it is to us today. So why this law? For two reasons. The first one's not very intuitive, but I believe it has something to do with the continued protection of God's daughters. Why? What does that law have anything to do with the protection of God's daughter? Well, first thing we need to do is take our 21st century Western lens off for a second, for a section, for a second while we talk about sexuality. There. The idea of sexuality that has developed in our Western culture in the past 50, 60 years or so will blind us to the meaning of this law because sexuality today is supposedly core to our identity. At least this is how the West sees things. So questioning one's sexuality is not so much questioning what they do so much as it is questioning who they are. 
In other words, questioning somebody's sexuality is questioning their very existence. Sexuality, we're told, is the core of our identity. But, but that's not how the ancient Near East thought it, and that's actually not how the Bible describes it either. You are not your sexuality at your core. That is not the genesis or the origin of your identity. You are, at your core, an image bearer of God. That's where we begin. Who am I? What am I? An image bearer of God. And so your sexuality is meant to receive its definition, its form and function from the ideal and the design and the holiness that God has instilled in his image on us. So coming to this text, the question we might be tempted to ask is, who in the world would identify with bestiality that needs to be told not to do it? The answer is no one. No one would. Well, then what's the point of the law? Because in the ancient Near East, sexuality is not identity, but activity. It's something done, not someone being. And if that's the case, then that means people were divided into two classes in this arena, those who were active and those who were passive. So to act on an animal was first, and most obviously, to abuse a powerless creature in a most perverted way. That goes without saying, but there's more. Second, it is to effectively communicate to women, you are as meaningful to men as our animals. It was to strip women of their dignity as image bearers of God, effectively killing them in society, because in Genesis 9, 6, we read, whoever sheds the blood of man, by the man his blood shall be shed, for God has made him in his own image. Thus, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. You see, God is not only protecting the powerless animals, but he's protecting women so that injustice is avoided altogether in the first place. And all of this comes to the forefront because false worship exists near to Israel. Israel is eventually going to go into Canaan. This type of false worship exists. It was a form of false worship in Canaan. We're warned in Leviticus 18 about how it indicates that both men and women participated in these rituals to receive approval from these so-called gods. And again, God doesn't want Israel to become like their neighbors. They're a holy nation. They're supposed to be different, certainly in this arena. That's the law. So even though it's very shocking and strange and foreign to us, essentially what God is demanding from Israel is this. You must protect the powerless by ensuring you abstain from false worship. And by abstaining from false worship, you are refusing to bow to gods who prey on the powerless. In fact, earlier I mentioned the sacrifice of children to Canaanite deities and demanded people to murder babies to please them. And you might ask what terribly evil gods would do that. Well, the kinds that are possessed by their father, the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I think this is why the next command seems so harsh at first hearing, but makes sense when you realize that the destruction of the children at Canaanite deities uh, demanded. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Don't be mistaken by this law. 
God isn't some insecure being in need of Israel's worship so that to worship a false god is to somehow lessen something about God himself. Like God doesn't need Israel's worship to be satisfied. He doesn't need your worship to be satisfied. If nobody in the world worshiped God, he would still be satisfied in himself because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has enjoyed love and admiration in himself eternally and will continue to do so for eternity. The Father loves the Son. The Son admires the Father. The Spirit esteems the Father and the Son. God doesn't need Israel's worship, but he wants it. He wants it. Because he knows that worshiping him as opposed to the false gods is opposed to, for our sake, false, uh, entirely devoting yourself to relationships or identities or politics or career or experience. Worshiping the Lord your God and him alone leads to a life that is eternal and to fullness and to human flourishing and to justice and righteousness and holiness and ultimately and most importantly to God's glory. And God also wants Israel to protect the powerless. It's a theme that we're seeing again and again. God protects daughters and orphans and widows and sojourners and animals from whom? The powers, the false gods who prey on the powerless. This is why God prohibits you from sacrificing to any god because Yahweh knows those gods. He knows what they're after. And he doesn't want Israel to give it to him. But he also doesn't want Israel to give them anything at all. Which is why we have uh, verses uh, 29 and 331a. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with the mother and on the eighth day it shall give it to me. It's when they can be on their own. Verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. So why does God desire the first for him? In short, because the gods don't deserve the first of anything. The sacrifices of the first fruits would be wasted on them. And those terrible gods demand the death of the firstborn son. When God here in this passage says, uh, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, he's not asking them to be sacrificed to them. He's asking them to be set apart or consecrated for him in national use, uh, especially if you're a Levite. So your firstborn son, as we see in the New Testament, is given over to temple worship. Uh, they don't have a temple yet, right? But they will. And so effectively what God's asking them to do here is uh, to trust God with their firstborn son, which means you are not betting on your firstborn son for your, the success of your tribe in the future. You're betting on God for the success of your tribe for the future. This is a, this is a command of trust, not some kind of arbitrary, uh, I get my cut first, like God's some kind of mafia boss, right? But more than this, God will use the sacrifices and first fruits and consecration of sons to prepare Israel's heart to receive the resurrection of Christ. This is really important. It's why Jesus is called the firstfruits of the resurrection and why he's called the firstborn of all creation. Because these firsts were given over to God for a purpose, which is redemption. God wants Israel to give him, not the gods, but to give him the firstfruits and him the firstborn so that Israel's heart is ready to receive the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15, and to make sure Israel's ready to worship the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Paul says in Colossians 1.15. You see, these laws to live and worship a different way were ultimately tuning Israel's ears into what God is doing. To hear Christ say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not those gods. I, God is spirit, not these idols. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God will redeem the powerless by consecrating his firstborn son who willingly laid down his life as a pleasing and acceptable act of worship to God. And in doing so, he's securing eternal life for the spiritually oppressed and he's securing justice for the powerless. And as Israel's hearts were being prepared to see God's plan of redemption leading them to a different or holy life and a holy form of worship, we as the church need to realize we're in a very similar situation, aren't we? Israel was not a people. They were bound to slavery in Egypt. God called them out and he gave them a new way to live and a new way to worship, even though there were Canaanite cultures, ancient Egyptian cultures around them that would tempt them to do otherwise. And that is the story of the church as well. Every single one of you, if you were a believer, you were not God's people. You were in bondage to sin. You are called out by the gospel, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and now you are part of a community who is meant to live differently from the world, and you are meant to worship differently than the world. Not to live out of it, but to live in it, just not of it. These laws, so, so the question is, well, how is God doing that aside from the obvious? Because I don't know if you are like me, but I, I don't like to be told what to do without being told why. Right? Anybody like me? I mean, in, any, in, a, in this right circumstance, I will. Right? But I want to know, like, why can't I bring a lion into the movie theater on Sundays in Jackson County, Indiana? You know what I mean? Like, that's a really interesting law. Like, what's going on here? Um, but... Do lawmakers, does God owe us a reason? No, especially not God. He is holiness. He can just don't do it. Why? Because I said so. But God's gracious, and he tells us why. He's letting us in on the why. He's teaching Israel something explicit. Don't do this. Do that. But he's also teaching Israel something implicit because. Let's go back to verse 21. You shall not, here is the explicit, just don't do this, okay? You shall not wrong the sojourner or press him. Here's the implicit. Because for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. A gentle reminder. And the same is true for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need reminding all the time, don't we? And so much of the Old Testament is actually just reminding believers what they already know. Something as major as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15. I remind you, therefore, who needs to be reminded that God died and rose again? Apparently we do. And that's a pattern that exists over and over and over again through Scripture. There's a difference between who we were and who we are in Christ, and we need to remember that or else we lose sight on the distinct living God has called us to and the distinct worship God has called us to. Who were we in Christ? 
Who are we being made into in the Holy Spirit? Similar to the Israel, we were not a people of God's possession, 1 Peter 2.10 says. We were in bondage in spiritual Egypt, Romans 6.17. We were very distant. Remember that earlier? When God approached and he was in that thick cloud and Israel's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Moses, you go. <laughs> so were we, Ephesians 2.13. We were far off, Paul says. We were like the unholy cultures around Israel. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And Paul says, most of all, you were dead in trespasses and sin. The reason you were alienated, the reason you were far off, the reason you were in bondage is because you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul's not excluding himself here. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, not but us. Hey, not even but the law but God. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. For you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, set apart, different in your living and worship, and blameless and above reproach for him. This is the beautiful truth that we see in embryo form in these laws that seem so far and distant from us that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, through faith in that alone, he is turning sinners into saints. And this truth ought to cause us to rejoice and want to worship God alone. And the more we worship God alone, the more we become like him. Because what people revere, they resemble, for either ruin or restoration. God has called his church, this church, all of us to be a restored holy nation, remembering who we were and what God has done in his wonderful works to his glory alone. Calling us to a new way of living, calling us to a new way of worship, so that if we worship these so-called gods, the idols of our culture and the world, who are unjust and self-centered and treating people as objects, then won't we become the same? But if we worship a God who in the incarnation in the Lord Jesus who walked among us was just and humble and loving towards God and towards neighbor, then won't we be the same? 
We were sojourners in sin, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's be a church who refuses to worship and live the way that the world does so that actually we can love the world in the way God does by being salt and light, worshipers of the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us new modes and meanings for living. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that even though being so far removed from time and culture, it feels so foreign, yet your spirit can draw us so near to it because we see what you are doing in it, calling out a people from darkness to be a holy nation in a distinct way of living by a distinct way of worshiping. Father, we recognize that we see ourselves both in violation of these laws, that we have been oppressive to the powerless, and that by victims of these laws, we have been oppressed as powerless. And so we look forward to both your Holy Spirit renewing us, to seek mercy and justice as you define and call us to, and for those that have been abandoned and violated and abused that you would one day bring justice to them and restoration. Father, we recognize that by doing this is to say no to ourselves and yes to you, to worship you in heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to live in a peculiar way that the world may not understand, but is perfectly normal in the kingdom of heaven. Father, teach us those ways Teach us to worship you well. To your glory, and in your son's name we pray. Amen.